Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 7. We're gonna, we've got just a few weeks left of the Sermon on the Mount. And um, as we're kind of wrapping up this, uh, the conclusion, really, of the sermon. And we're going to be looking at three verses this morning. Verse, uh, Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. And I'm going to put them up on the screen. And then um, we will read them together. And then we'll kind of walk through these. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, says this. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, let's stop and just pray real quick before we, we jump into this this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us. God, we thank you for the fact that Jesus loved his disciples so much and loves us so much that he reiterates the important things again and again. That he is taking the time to be so forceful and so clear about what he's talking about here. We pray that as we wrestle with this passage ourselves, that each one of us would evaluate our own heart. This is a passage that applies to every single person in the world every single day of their lives, whether they follow you or not. And so we pray that we would be able to give it that weight this morning, Father. We thank you for how much you love us, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So right out of the gate, I just want to say this. this I think this passage is kind of terrifying. I think it's a pretty scary passage, okay? This is one that I will officially say I have lost sleep over this passage. Because there, because it's, it, and I was talking with someone about it in the first service, it's like the great equalizer, okay? This passage truly does apply to every single person at every single time in their life. And if you've been following Jesus for any part of your life, you maybe realize that the longer that you do that, the harder a passage like this can be to wrestle with because of how specific Jesus is and what he is saying to his disciples through it. Now, Jesus has been talking about things sort of in twos. He's been talking about two paths. When he said there was a narrow road and there was a wide road and only one of them led to the kingdom. He talks about two trees. We talked last week about the idea of producing fruit and that there's a tree that produces good fruit and there's trees that produce bad fruit. And we ought to be the one that produces good fruit because that's the one that characterizes life in the kingdom. And this week he's talking about essentially two different claims. That when we show up at the gates of heaven and see Jesus, when we show up there and we see him, that the question will be, do we make one claim or do we make another? And what specifically, even more importantly, does he say about us in return? Now, if anyone with Jesus were to write this, were to say this, we would immediately say, that's not something Jesus would say, right? That person is going way over the top. That's a definitely a very extreme take on some of the things that Jesus has taught about and that he talks about. But Jesus himself is saying it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount with such force to his disciples that we know that we are supposed to pay very close attention to it. So here's what he says. And this, like a lot of what we've read in the Sermon on the Mount, is very simply structured. Jesus introduces an idea 
And it's an idea that's kind of hard to wrap our mind around. And so he explains it in more detail in the following verses. He gives you an example. He makes it super crystal clear what exactly he's talking about. And this is the thing about Jesus is sometimes you don't want to ask Jesus questions because Jesus says something and people ask him to clarify thinking that maybe it'll make it a little easier for them. And then they realize it always, it never seems to make it easier for you, right? You ask Jesus something, he says it, then you ask him another question, you say, follow it up, Jesus, specify, give me an example. And when he does, it's always even more convicting than had it just been sort of vague in the beginning, right? And this, again, is what we see in this passage. He starts out by saying this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So these people he's talking about, he says people will say, people say, Lord, Lord. Now this phrase is an important one. He doesn't say people call me Jesus, they call me Christ, they call me Messiah, they call me Rabbi, or that they're saying God. They're saying Lord, and Lord means something specific. The Lord of your life, a Lord in your life is a ruler over you. It's a king. It's someone that you have said, I'm a part of your kingdom. I serve under you. You sit on the throne of my life. You're the boss. You're in charge. So those, not everyone who even says, Lord, Lord, who even calls God, essentially the ruler of their life, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's a pretty crazy statement to make right there. It seems almost to contradict some of the things that Jesus has said. Now, there's this thing that Jesus is basically saying about followers of his. He's saying that many of them will turn out to not have been true followers. And he says this a couple times in in the Sermon on the Mount. But he says this a lot in his ministry as he interacts with big groups of people. Listen, there's all these people saying, Lord, Lord. Not all of those people. In fact, many, he says, of those people won't ultimately have been a part of the kingdom. Won't really be following me. And on this example, will we, I don't think we'll get to a clearer, more specific example where the bar is raised so high, where he says, no, these people will have done some pretty impressive things and said some very accurate things. To say Lord, Lord is essentially to call him the right thing. There's a lot of names and things that you could call God and call Jesus. There's a lot of different ways that you could see God, that you could see Jesus. This is the right one. It's one of the right ones for sure. So they've said the right things, but for some reason they're not allowed in. And his reason is this. He says, the only ones in are the ones who will do the will of my Father in heaven. So there are people who will call him their king and their Lord and their God, and yet they won't do his will. So if you do the will of the Father in heaven and you call him Lord, Lord, then you will be able to enter into the kingdom. And he says they won't be able to go into the actual kingdom of heaven. Now, the thing we have to understand here is what Jesus means when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. Because he's saying that our father is a king. And he rules and he has a reign and he has authority and he has power. And it's not limited to a geographic place. But it's limited to wherever he exists within the hearts of people. So if we decide to colonize Mars and a Christian goes over there, guess what? Kingdom of God on Mars now too, right? Because the kingdom of God is where his people are, it's where his rule and his reign extends. It's not just about one country, it's not just about where they all mostly live, but it goes, it, it, it is a matter more of the rule over of the life of a person, okay? It's kind of like 
It's kind of a weird example maybe, but it's kind of like if you become a Boy Scout at one point, uh, you're a Boy Scout now, okay? You wear the badges, you have the uniform, you are now a part of that group. And it doesn't matter if you move somewhere else, it doesn't matter if you live in another country, right? It's kind of like how if you're an American citizen, you can go visit another country, but you're still an American. You're not a part of that country, okay? So, so the kingdom of God is defined by God's rule in the, lives of, of a per, in the life of a person. You can't just be a part of the kingdom of God because you're a part of a Christian family. You can't just be a part of the kingdom of God because you're a part of a church. You can't just be a part of the kingdom of God if you live in America because that's not the way the kingdom of God operates. It is those who call him Lord, Lord that are a part of his kingdom. This word kingdom, it's translated into basileia, which is where we get words like basilica, and it's the idea of a distinct of a district or an area that's ruled by a king. So imagine for a second that you're you're kind of like a barbarian living out in the wilderness and you see this great land and you enter into it and it's a beautiful, wonderful place and there's rule and order and purpose and people have like this great community going on and you say, "What's the deal with this place?" And they say, "Oh, it's easy. It's a kingdom." What does that mean? It means it's ruled by that king. It means as long as that person sits on that throne, this place will be this way. And so people look at it. They say, that looks appealing to me. I like that. Jesus is saying, not all the people who say that looks appealing and I like it and I want to be part of it even really want to be a part of it and are a part of it. There are people who will do good things. They will say good things. They will even say that Jesus is the king, but they won't be a part of the kingdom. Now, this is a crazy thing about Jesus. He was a servant. He washed people's feet. He, uh, he let people anoint him with oil. He, he, we, we celebrate today Palm Sunday, which is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And he entered in on the back of a donkey with palm leaves on the ground as the donkey went over them which is very unusual for somebody who, um, who dines with sinners and tax collectors and cares for the sick and the poor, right? But even though Jesus was a servant, he was constantly pointing people back to this idea of a kingdom. There is a king, and we are called to be a part of that kingdom. And if we live outside of it, we don't, we don't live as we're truly intended to live. So what these people did that Jesus was talking about is they say, Lord, Lord, and they even themselves decide ultimately to become ambassadors of the kingdom. Because if we go on, well, what he says here is he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And we say, well, who is that person? And he goes on. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? These are the people that have chosen to very much even become ambassadors to this kingdom. They have said, we're going to tell other people about how great this kingdom is. We're going to proclaim the good news of it. We're going to serve on behalf of the king. And yet somehow they're not really a part of the kingdom. Now there's a reason Jesus says this to his disciples, because these are all things that they would go on to do. We know that he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to followers, to believers. And he's saying to them, all of these things that you're going to go on to do, they're not the reason that you're going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. If you say the right things and you do the right things, you might still not be a part of the kingdom. 
He's talking about the dangers of basing your salvation on these things, of basing your salvation on either lip service or of your lifestyle. Now, we know the power of this, saying the right things and what that means for being a Christian, right? You don't have to be a part of a church or around a group of Christians for very long before people will take it upon themselves to tell you, here's what we say, here's what we don't say. No, we don't say that. No, definitely don't say that. And we say it this way, really, here, and we don't We don't say it that way. We don't say that that way, right? We have our own things that we say and the ways that we say them. These were people who were not ashamed of Jesus. They publicly stated their loyalty to him, and they said that he was their Lord. So these people were not afraid to say, God is God, Jesus is Lord. But they were also not afraid. They also knew the right information, They like knew the right stuff. They knew the right doctrine. Again, they're saying the right words here, which means you can read it and you can understand it in your mind and you can go, I know the answers to all the questions. I I get an A on the test. I know the right doctrine. And And they honestly seem to believe that they're sincere, right? These people are caught off guard by this, which is why it catches so many of us as frightful, is we say, well, if they thought that they were saved, if they thought they were part of the kingdom, they seem pretty, pretty they're, they're saying, hey, we, we did all these things. We say, Lord, Lord, what's the deal? Why are we not in? Now, the truth is, saying the right things are often, it's not what our salvation's tied up in, but I think it's often true that we care a lot about saying the right things, right? We care a lot about having the right answers. We care a lot about saying things the right way. We care a lot sometimes, maybe too much, about this idea of giving lip service to things rather than believing them within our heart. And that if we're honest, that many of us in the church are okay with people as long as they say the right things, right? As long as you say the right thing, I'm fine. As long as you answer the question the right way, I'm fine, okay? Now, when we're honest, okay, when we're honest, isn't it true that much of the reason why we get upset oftentimes at the things that are happening in this world is because people simply aren't saying the right things, right? December rolls around and people aren't saying the right things. They're not saying Merry Christmas, not enough people, not in the right way. And we get upset, and we go, at least say it, right? At a time of year that is characterized by people not really believing the thing they're celebrating, right? I mean, that's like the one thing we know is you're constantly during that whole month going, it's not about this, even though I spent all my time on it. It's not about that, even though I spent all the money on it. It's not about this, even though I did all that. No, 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 it's about Jesus. At least just say it's about Jesus and then I'll be happy. I'll I'll lower it to that, okay? If we can all just say it, okay? And we actually get upset when people don't say it, right? We get upset when people in our houses don't say the things we want them to say when they, don't, when, they don't, when they don't give the right words and use the right answers. And it's easy to get the impression that as long as we just do that, we'll be fine. And lip service does not get you into the kingdom. And when that's all it is, that's all it is. But it's not just the words that they said, it was their lifestyle that they lived because they did these great things. They did things that even seemed to require God's help, don't they? To prophesy, to see miracles happen right, to proclaim the kingdom. And this reminds us of a parable that Jesus tells his disciples where where, where he says there's this field and wheat is growing up in it, but then these tares are growing up in it too, which are weeds. You're gonna have the kingdom of God and there's gonna be good people and then you're gonna have the bad people. Don't obsess with pulling out all the bad people right now. 
Wait until the judgment and I'll take care of it myself. Because if you pull them out now, they'll, just, they'll damage the people around them. They'll damage the church. They'll damage the community. If all you care about is rooting out all the people that aren't pure in motives, then you're going to damage the community. And I don't want you to do that. It's not worth it for the sake of what you're going to do for the kingdom as a community. And so we see that there are people amongst us, right? There are people who can do good things and can say the right things and still not be a part of the kingdom. And they're pretty impressive things. And again, just like we learn how to talk, we learn how to act. Here's what we do. We don't do that. Here's what you should do. You shouldn't do that. In fact, I wouldn't even do this that way. I would do this this way. And it doesn't take long for us to figure out the lifestyle, right, that we're meant to live, that we're supposed to live. Oftentimes, things that we don't read in Scripture, things that are not explicitly taught by Jesus as you have to be this way, or we pick certain aspects of the lifestyle, right? Jesus talks about one set of sins, and, and, and we say, don't do any of those things. And then he talks about greed, and we're like, well, you know, I mean, I'm not really greedy. You're not really greedy. In fact, if we agree that we're not greedy, then we're definitely not greedy, right? Even though, let's be honest, we're all incredibly greedy. We have way more stuff than we need, and none of us have ever given half of what we own to a neighbor, which would technically be, would qualify for loving your neighbor as much as yourself. Because I, know, I don't know how you guys love yourself, but I love myself as stuff. You don't have to be around the church lawn to get a pretty quick idea of how you're supposed to act and what you're supposed to do and what qualifies as being a part of this group and part of the kingdom. You say, I attend. I belong. I serve. I sacrifice. For some, I proclaim and I teach and I even lead people. Or you say, I've given up and I have sacrificed things. I've given up things that I know for a fact people around me have not given up. I know that's got to count. Look at what I've done. These are good things that I've done that Jesus talks about. I've done them. In fact, the question is, why, if the road is narrow and hard, do people think that they're on it when they're not, right? Why do, we, why do we put ourselves on that road when we're not really on it? I was reading about this this week, and one pastor, he summed it up so well, and I want to I I put this quote up here. He says, the question is, why would anyone willfully take up the so-called narrow way apart from being born again? For many, it is the path of least resistance. To do otherwise would impair comfortable family and social relationships. We also must remember that the biblical lifestyle is a good way to live. Families that subscribe to biblical models tend to be happier and healthier and stay together longer. It is not at all surprising that Christianity being so wholesome attracts those who would practice its style without knowing its inner reality. The human race has an incredible capacity for self-delusion. You see, for many, all of these actions and many of these words are the path of least resistance. It's staying on the path that we've found ourselves always on. And this is a large part, I believe, of why many people will ultimately stand before Jesus and say, what? I did everything. I said everything. I was always a part of the team. And he says, you were never a part of the team. He doesn't say that. You're part of the team. You were never a part of the kingdom. And when I think about this, this is hard when I think about this as a parent, and I think about what it is 
to say, this is the kingdom of God, and here's what I want to call my own family to in a way that says this is not just going to be the path of least resistance for you. Because so much of what you can do to try to impart the kingdom of God to others and encourage them to follow it and help them like actually learn what that means and even develop disciplines and habits about what that means um, can often just put people on this road, this path, where now it's very clear we're communicating as a family, it's very clear we're communicating as a community, and it's this, as long as you say these things, as long as you do these things, I will be happy with you, and you will be part of our family, right? And how easy it is to set that path up for those that we care about the most from a very good place, And so what we care about, and we talk about this a lot when we talk about discipleship and we talk about reaching the lost, we care about the heart of people because what Jesus is talking about here is this. He's talking about their heart. He's talking about their heart. Oh no, we're gonna talk about the heart. Talk about the hardest thing to wrap your mind around and how does that, and where am I at with that and what does that even look like for me or for what does Jesus want from me? My heart. But if we want others to know him, then we get to know their hearts. How? You ask as much as you tell. That's how. This is what Jesus was very good at. He asked people really good questions to know who was in front of him before he gave them answers. He didn't just read off for them the rules of the kingdom and the parables of the kingdom, but he asked people questions which was a common practice from rabbis of the time. And it is a very effective way to communicate something to someone because then you know them. It says, me knowing you is as important as me telling you things. You ask as much as you tell. You ask as much as you tell. You ask as much as you tell. How many of us think of that as what it is to share the gospel with someone, to disciple someone, to raise someone up in the faith, is to ask as much as we tell? And you say, well, wait a second, though. Doesn't the Bible have an important role in this? Doesn't God's word need to be proclaimed? Are you saying that what we feel and how we feel is as important as God's word? Here's how God's word is described in God's word. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Do you know what all those things have in common? They are valuable for someone who is a believer. And that is not to say that God's word doesn't matter for an unbeliever, but if someone is not a part of the kingdom and does not have a heart that desires it, then you can't just tell them and tell them and tell them and tell them and dump information on them and correct them and reproof them and train someone who never said, I believe this. God's word is incredibly valuable. It is truth, it is life, it is light in the darkness. It shows us who we are, and most importantly, it shows us who God is, how we live in light of him. But we ask as much as we tell so that we can know the hearts of people. And so Jesus says this to them. He says the four scariest words that anyone could ever hear. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says to them, I never knew you. 
you have to remember that all mankind is going to ultimately be divided into two groups of people. Those who know God and those who do not. Those who are known by God and those who are not. That we think a lot when it comes to maybe judgment time about wrongs being righted and justice being served and everything evening out for what it was meant to be ultimately without often thinking that, that judgment is ultimately about this. Jesus saying, I knew you or I never knew you. And what those four words would feel like to hear. This word knew, it's not like knowledge, it's a relationship. It's to know a person, like you know in a deep friendship, like you know in a marriage, like you know in a relationship with somebody. He says, I didn't have a relationship with you. I never had a relationship with you. Ours is a God who says, I desire for you to know me. That without me, you have no heart, you have no soul, you have no spirit. Without me, you are a vessel that is empty. You are like a, like a pot of clay made of earth that is empty without life, without heart and spirit. This is a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around because the universe is so big and we are so indescribably small. And I mean that literally. It is impossible to describe how small one of us is compared to the size of the universe. The closest we can get is describing how big Earth is. And even that we can't really describe with great accuracy in a way that, any, that like most people at least would understand. And so we made the mistake of thinking, well, I'll say this, when we thought that physical creation centered on us, that made sense to us, right? Well, okay, God says that, you know, that we matter, that we're significant, and, and I'm the center of all of those, uh, you know, we're the center of, the, of, the, of, of the, the sun goes around us, you know, everything goes around us. And so the problem is when we began to learn that we were not physically the center of the universe, that we were not physically the center of a solar system, that we in, incorrectly associated that with the idea that then these things must not be true, right? I mean, if, if we're really significant at all from this God who created everything, it, it makes no sense. Nothing about our scale or our scope or our size seems significant about us. But ours is a God who doesn't care about the space between planets and stars. He doesn't care about the size of one space over another. Ours is a God who stands outside of those things. And it's just like he isn't any more impressed with the president of the United States than he is with somebody who's like the janitor at the White House. And we know because he tells us that. It's actually a bad example because that's probably a pretty good job if you're a janitor. You work at the White House. And some people are probably really impressed by that, right? But nevertheless, ours is a God who says, I don't care about these physical distinctions. And I don't place importance in physical, in the collection and distribution of physical mass in the universe or the space between that mass, where there's apparently no mass. He says, I am a relational God, and I care about a relationship with relational beings who I've created. And so you are significant, even if you're tiny. Because being known by me is everything, says God, and you knowing me 
is everything. This is why, like I said, when we talk about making disciples, we talk about doing it through relationships with people. Because what is that to know God? What is that to be in a relationship with God? What is that for our heart to be in a certain place with God? What does that take to know that? That takes sitting across from another person, sitting with a group of people, and actually talking about what we believe and about why we believe it, and asking each other questions about, do you know God? Do you have a relationship with God? And not getting bogged down by or caught up on all of the stuff that happens in our life on any given day that even distracts us from that thing. Thinking, are we here to talk about you know, our jobs and our families and our marriages and our friendships? It's helpful to talk about those things in this how they relate to our relationship with Christ, but that's not the reason why we gather and why we talk to one another. That's not, that's not what it is to be discipled. And it also isn't saying we're gonna have a discipleship night and everyone show up and then when you leave, you'll all be disciples, right? Because it doesn't work that way. Because you can say the right words and you can do a bunch of impressive things, but that does not mean that you are a disciple of Jesus or a part of the kingdom. We help one another along on that journey. And you hear that and you go, Ed, a relationship? Could you pick more of a moving target? Could you pick a harder thing to nail down to say that's the thing that we're supposed to have? But I don't think relationships are all as confusing as we say that they are when it comes to our relationship with God. If I asked you to make a list of the 10 people that you have the biggest relationships with, what are the 10 most significant relationships in your life? And then I went to those 10 people and I said, here's this list that they made. What are the chances that one of those people would be like, who said that? What? Wait, what's the last name again? Oh, I mean, I work with them, kind of. I know, I mean, I know, wow, that's weird that he would say that. No, no, not a significant relationship with me. Because the way significant relationships in our life work is we define those not just by us knowing them, but them knowing us. And we know what those relationships in our life are. That would be an easy question for most of us to answer. And you might say, okay, fine, but how about this? People are physical. They say words that I can hear in my ears all the time, even when I don't want to hear them. That when we hang out and when we interact, it's like a physical interaction with two people, right? That's not exactly how it feels like it's working out with me and God much of the time. And God tells us, he says, if you seek me, you will find me. When we seek God, we know that he is there. And what, what, you say, but, but, but how do I, what does he want, what, is, what, am, what about him? How do I know about him? How do I know what he thinks, what he feels, what he says? Oh, if only there was a way to know that stuff. And God gives us his word. And, 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 and the moment that you want to say, oh, that's limited, or what's in that, or how, how much can I really know from that? I know, we know way, I know way more about God from what he's shown me in the Bible than I know about my wife, than I know about my kids, than I know about my parents, than I know about my friends, because there's a book about him. And I wish I had that about all those people. I mean, if there was a book about a person in your life that you could go back to and you could say, oh yeah, that's what they're like, yeah. That's what they care about, yeah. That's what they said. If you could just write down all the stuff that was said. Texting has made that easier, right? It's made, it's made like remembering things that people say and things that people care about easier. But still, if we had that of, of, of the other relationships that we had in our lives, it would, it would actually help us significantly, to be able to, to know and go back. And that's what we do here, right? We, we, we go back and we look at it. And, and then the same things that you read, you go back to them again. Just like this passage. Because I have to ask myself this question regularly. 
And what Jesus calls these people that depart from him is he calls them workers of lawlessness. A worker, a laborer, this word means a laborer. This is somebody who goes out in the field and works all day. They go on the vineyard, they work all day. And what is produced by their work? What are they giving the world? What are they contributing to the world? Lawlessness, which is sin. He says, these people who think they're following me and aren't, are not only not going to be a part of my kingdom, but they are actually what's wrong with those outside of the kingdom. That it's not just the atheists and the murderers that are the source of all the problems that we deal with. It is the people who say, I believe in God, and who might even think that they believe in the right things and are doing the right things, but are not at all and have no relationship with him. Those people, he says, are workers of lawlessness. And what they ultimately are is what Scripture speaks most harshly against, which is lukewarm. How does Jesus respond to the religious people who aren't really religious? More harshly than he responds to the sinners and the tax collectors and the outcasts of society. So what does this do for us, apart from freak us out and overwhelm us, right? What does this do? You have to ask, we have to ask ourselves some questions about this. The first one is this. Do I need to focus? Because that's what this passage does. With this passage, Jesus is saying, I want you to crowd everything else out, and I want you to focus on whatever that thing is that actually brings you into the kingdom. Do you know me? Do I know you? All the things that you can do that might be great, all the people that you might know, all of the words that you might say, all the groups you're a part of, if you take all those things and put them aside and you focus on this, do you know me? Because this is a constant reminder from Jesus of what really matters. He's saying, nothing will ever matter more in your life than this. So focus on this and let everything else fall aside for a second and ask yourself where you stand with this. Why am I doing this? This is the question we cannot ask ourselves too much. Because if you ask yourself that question today, you're gonna have to ask yourself that question tomorrow. And in 10 years, you're gonna have to ask yourself that question. Why am, I, why am I doing this? Why am I still doing this? Why am I still here? Why am I still doing and saying? Is it because I've just been doing it? Is there a relationship? Or you ask yourself, do you see joy in following Jesus? Because being a part of the kingdom of God is characterized by joy. Jesus talks about joy. Jesus himself exhibited deep sense of joy. Even though so much sacrifice and pain were involved in his ministry. Do you see joy in following Jesus? If you don't have a relationship with him, you cannot take joy in him. And if you struggle to ever find joy in Jesus, then that's a good place to start asking yourself, why? Why do I not experience that thing that they talk about? When they talk about the kingdom of God and about what it is to have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A rabbi, the whole body of their teaching, everything they taught, and each rabbi had their own stuff, was called their yoke. You brought their yoke upon you, the rabbi. And Jesus says to them, my teaching, my words, my yoke is easy and it's light. Do you find rest in him or just work and toil? 
Is God a relationship to you or just someone that you're serving? A lot of people in talking about this passage have, 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 have really wrestled with this when they've gotten sick or injured or something has caused them to be cut off from the rest of society or the church. And there are no more people to do good things in front of. And there are no more people to say good things in front of. And you end up in that point recognizing where you stand with God, this audience of one, when all that other stuff falls away. And how refining those times are in the faith of people who have to wrestle with that. Is this really the hard road or is it the easy path? Are you on the path that you're on because it's the path of least resistance? When I talked last week about the narrow road, the hard road, were you kind of like, oh, good, I get a week off. I'm on the hard road, I know that. I chose it, I'm on it, you know. My life's hard and, you know, it's impressive and hard and all that stuff. But, uh, but am I on the hard road and the hard path or am I on the path of least resistance? Have I just agreed with people around me that as long as I stay where I am, keep saying and doing and agreeing, that everything will be fine? Are we creating a culture here of that? Are we creating a culture in our homes that says, just tell me what I want to hear, just do these things and nobody's going to get hurt? This is especially painful when you apply it to the role of shepherding anyone in the faith. Are you a shepherd as you shepherd? Are you real? Uh, If God's put you in a position and um, we're all potentially in that position, as we're called to make disciples who make disciples, to preach to the lost, that means that we all are called in some way or another to shepherd at some point. And the moment that you get into that position, you find yourself in a predicament because then When things start to get difficult, when the relationship starts to wane, when the doubt starts to come in, you've put yourself in a position where you have to keep saying these things, it feels like. You have to keep doing these things, it feels like. Which is why, as we shepherd, the question is, are you able to be real? Are you able to be real about those things, about where your relationship's at, rather than just, I'm in this position, I'm doing this thing, because God wants me to say these things and do these things for the benefit of this person or for these people. And I think the ultimate question we have to ask ourselves is this, do you know Jesus? We take Jesus' words exactly how he intended them. He says, at the end, it will be just you and me. Billy Graham just passed away. And after after such a long life, after such an incredible ministry, after such an impact on so many people, all that matters is him and Jesus. Do you know me and do I know you? Now, you may hear that and say, no, but look at his life. His life is evidence of such great faith and so many great things. Of course, he knows Jesus and Jesus knows him. But you could also look at his life and say, he died a wealthy man with presidents at his funeral and and a nation full of people saying he is the most famous evangelist that America will ever know. Seems like a pretty good life. What Billy Graham would say? I'm going to guess here, if he was standing right here right now 
is he would say, it doesn't matter what I think of you, and it doesn't matter what any of you think of me anymore. It matters that Jesus knows me and that I know him. That's what matters. It doesn't matter what I think of you. It doesn't matter what you think of me. It doesn't matter how impressed I am with you, how impressed you are with me. What matters is Jesus, does he know you and do you know him? We allow these very words that Jesus preached to shake us up. They shake us out of sort of a slumber. From, for many, the daily life of following him and relying as a default mode, if we admit it, to uh, relying upon just the things we do, the things we say, the groups we're a part of, the way we serve, the way we're involved, the way people know us, the reputation that we've developed, the longevity of our faith. These words of Jesus, they shake us out of that. And they say, those are all great things, but without this one thing, without really knowing me, and without me knowing you, those things won't matter for you. The great thing, the interesting thing about it is, he's like, they'll matter for me. They'll matter for the kingdom. People can do great things for the kingdom because that's how big God is. And he can still use those things to expand his kingdom even if the very people doing them don't end up becoming a part of the kingdom. And for many of us, the slumber that it shakes us out of is maybe standing on the periphery of this for years, maybe for many years. Not ever actually thinking that what matters ultimately is simply do you know Jesus and does he know you? And to you, the only question is that. Do you know him and does he know you? Because none of us know what happens tomorrow. None of us know what happens when we walk out that door. But what we do know is when we stand before him that this is all that will matter. And so the question is, what is your answer to that? We're gonna spend some time in worship. We're gonna spend some time in prayer. And we're going to spend some time in communion as well. And as we do that, this is our time to really reflect on this. On really where our relationship with him is at. Whether we have one. So would you pray with me? Father, we are so profoundly grateful for who you are what you've done for us. We are grateful for the fact that you paid the price for our sins uh, so that we could know you. That you have pursued us. And for so many of us, Lord, we, um, we recognize that we haven't, um, we haven't been relying very much on the relationship that we have with you. We haven't been thinking even much about what it means to follow you as the time that we simply spend with you or how well you know us truly and deeply, how well we know you, Lord. Um, but in fact, have, have relied on the things that we do, the reputation that we develop, the words that we say that are all very impressive and that other people like, but may not be the real thing, Lord. God, our prayer is that you would help us to focus in this time, Lord. As we get on our knees and as we pray to you, Father, that you would 
that you would hear us, Father, and that you would meet us there. Father, for anybody here who does not yet know you, for anybody here who uh, does not yet trust you and have a relationship with you, but stands on the outside and sees that kingdom and sees that you are life and knows that you are our creator, Father, I pray that right now they would make that decision to follow you. If anyone in here, if you in here are that person, if you're in that place, then I don't want you to miss an opportunity to become a part of God's kingdom, to know him, to give your life to him, to repent and to walk with him. And so we're just gonna take a couple of minutes of time in prayer. Um, And I wanna invite anybody to come up to the front whether you don't know him and you want to, or whether you know him, but you need to talk with him. And you maybe even need to repent of the way that you have just been relying upon the words that you say and the things that you do in the group that you're a part of. If you're one of those people who don't know him, then just pray this with me right now. Father, I know that you are the author of life, that you made me, and that you made me to have a relationship with you. And God, I'm sorry that just like the prodigal son, I've wandered from you, and I've lived outside of your household and your kingdom. God, I'm sorry, and I repent. I turn away from my sin. Most of all, Lord, the independence of wanting to live my life without you. And I ask, God, that you'd forgive me. And God, I commit that I will follow you. God, you are so good and you love your children so much. We just pray that in this time as we worship, as we pray, Father, that you'd be glorified. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Father, you um, are our king, but you are a king who not only asks us to serve you, but to have a relationship with you. Father, uh, you are a good king, and our prayer is that when we say, Lord, Lord, that it be what we mean, Um, that we have an opportunity to be a part of a kingdom, of, of a perfect perfectly good, perfectly loving, perfectly great and glorious king. And Father, we have all kinds of reasons for being tempted to walk away from your kingdom or from you, to turn the work of the kingdom about, what, to make that what it's about, to make even the proclamation and the words that we say what it's about. But ultimately, it is always about you and it is about your kingdom. And so our prayer is that we would be less and that you would be more And that rather than even the passage you looked at today being something that causes us to stress out and constantly evaluate ourselves with a a magnifying glass, always feeling like some kind of a failure, that's not what Jesus intended. What Jesus intended was for his disciples to remember that the most dangerous thing on earth was a religious person who was not looking inwardly at their own heart. And so our prayer is that we would be that, Lord, that we would look inwardly at our heart in a way that no one else can, that you would show us what is there 
and that you would meet us there in that place, Father. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great Holy Week.